Is there a desire in you to not just attend revival, but live in revival? Welcome to the Revival Lifestyle Podcast. I'm your host, Isaiah Saldivar. I've been in revival for the last 10 years, as well as traveling and being a part of many revivals throughout the United States. I'm going to be sharing with you how to live a radical lifestyle of revival on a daily basis. Okay, there we go. Let's try this again. We're going to answer the controversial question, can a Christian have a demon? And more actually specific will be, can a demon indwell a believer? Many people believe the demon just dwells on the outside or a demon just dwells on top of them. But we're going to look at scripture. We're going to go over a lot of verses. And we're going to also go over what Derek Prince, who's a Greek scholar, teaches, what Don Dickerman, who's done over 25,000 deliverances, teaches, what Sam Storms, who's a well-known author and scholar, teaches, and also what John Eckhart teaches. I've never done this before, but we're actually going to be focusing on their teachings when it comes to Christians being demonized. And I'm going to show you that this is actually a very orthodox take when it comes to deliverance, that demons only dwell in people. Demons do not dwell on top of people. Jesus never one time cast a demon off of anyone. And we're going to look at some arguments here. First, we'll start with the objections of a Christian having a demon, of them saying, this is why you can't have a demon. And then we're going to look at some arguments for Christians having demons. And first of all, let me start by saying, no, a Christian cannot be demon possessed. But here's the caveat. Possession is not biblical. There's no biblical reality for possession. I would argue this, and I want to start with saying the devil does not own anything. The devil doesn't own anything. He doesn't own people. He doesn't own the world. He's the lowercase God of the world, but he doesn't own the world. So for the devil to possess something is unscriptural. So we're going to show that in scripture, that the devil is not possessing things. But I want to look at Sam Storm, some of the best articles I've ever read. We're going to meticulously go through two articles. If we have time, a third one, then we're going to go into what Derek Prince says. We're going to go into what Don Dickerman says. And then finally, what John Eckhart says, this is going to be exhaustive. This is going to be a deep dive. And then I'll make a shorter video. This is not going to be that short video. This will be probably an hour or more of just diving into this topic. And hopefully that I know there's many critics in the, in here tonight. I know there's many people that believe in many people that don't believe but hopefully hopefully by the end of this we can answer the question of can a christian have a demon dwelling in them that's really the argument i want to go and do now there's two main objections i just want to cover quickly before we go into these articles and the first one is if you are a temple of the holy spirit a demon can't be there and what the verse they're going to use is and let me actually go to not that screen okay that's not working for some reason uh let's go back to here okay Let's go to two verses that are going to be used. The first verse for if you're a temple of the Holy Spirit, a demon can't be there is 1 Corinthians. Again, this is exhaustive, so I'm going to try to go slow, which is not easy for me, but I'm going to go a different style tonight. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 19 through 20. Here's what they'll say against a demon indwelling a Christian. Uh, this is says, don't you realize that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who lives in you and was given to you by God? You do not belong to yourself, for God brought you with a high price, so you must honor God with your body. Okay, so they will say... A demon can't dwell because clearly this verse is talking about you are a temple of the Holy Spirit and how can the Holy Spirit, which we're going to go deep into tonight, and a demon dwell in the same place. But here's the context of 1 Corinthians 6, 15, because they use 1 Corinthians 6, 19 through 20, and they say, don't you realize you're a temple of the Holy Spirit? Your body's been given, doesn't belong to you. But the context is the verse 15 where it says, don't you realize your bodies are actually parts of Christ? And then it says this. Should a man take his body, which is part of Christ, and join it to a prostitute? Never. And don't you realize that if a man joins himself to a prostitute, he becomes one body with her, for two are united with one. But the person is joined to the Lord is with one spirit. And then look at verse 18, before 19 and 20, which they quote. Run from sexual sin. No other sin clearly affects the body in this one, for sexual immorality is sin against your own body. 
So skip to now verse 19 and 20, where it says, don't you realize you're a temple of the Holy Spirit, which is what people use to say Christians can't indwell believers. But that whole entire text is not about demons indwelling believers. It's actually about sexual immorality. And when you join yourself in sexual immorality to a prostitute or fornication or any other sexual immorality, actually you're joining members of Christ to that person that's the text so we can't take that verse out of context and say well if you're a temple of the holy spirit a demon can't be there that's not the way it works and if you guys are wondering why i just started four minutes ago i'm not doing any intro tonight i'm jumping straight into it because we want to make sure we don't have to clip this and edit it we want to just post the raw stream so everybody can watch this and all of your family and friends have questions of how could you have a demon if you're a christian you can send them this exhaustive video and i'll make a shorter one later so objection one if you're a temple of the holy spirit a demon can't be there the verse used is not talking about a demon it's talking about sexual immorality and then the second verse and then we're gonna jump into this article which is honestly probably one of the best articles I've ever read by scholar Sam Storms who's very recognized in the charismatic world and the reformed world he's an author of many books we're gonna break down his two long articles and then talk about Derek Prince what he has to say Don Dickerman and also John Eckhart so it's not just Isaiah Saldivar teaching these things tonight I want to actually break down what all these other people have to say on the matter and we'll go we'll go deep dive again it's exhaustive we're not in a rush tonight the second argument I want to address before we jump into the Sam Storms article is how can light and darkness dwell together and the verse they will use is 2nd Corinthians chapter 6 verse 15 what harmony can there be between Christ and the devil how can a believer partner with an unbeliever now let's look at the previous verse which is second corinthians chapter 6 verse 14 it says do not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers so what is paul talking about paul is talking about an unbeliever and a believer partnering this is not no no with nothing to do with demons but let's keep going for what fellowship has righteousness with lawlessness and what communion has light with darkness so they will say a christian can't be indwelled by a demon because what fellowship has light with darkness but let's look at the context of the verse is it talking about demons it's talking about fellowshipping with unbelievers and then verse 15 and what accord has christ with belial or what part has a believer with an unbeliever so the specific text is talking about being yoked together with unbelievers not a believer having a demon now the nlt says don't team up with unbelievers so again paul is clearly not saying a christian can't have a demon and light can't be with darkness he says what fellowship does light have with darkness so it can have fellowship with darkness but it shouldn't have fellowship with darkness okay so those are the two objections the main ones the temple of the holy spirit and then they use the verse second corinthians 6 15 about partnering with unbelievers but now let's go into a deep dive here to one of the best articles i've read we're going to look at again not just what i have to say but this man sam storms is well recognized well looked at scholar and he has a very good article here that i found two parts and then if we have time a bonus third part later of christian and demonization specifically answering the question can a demon indwell a christian and can a christian have a demon so he says in a recent review of my book practicing the power tim Callies took issue with my suggestion that born-again christians could possibly be demonized okay so that's the argument can a born-again christian possibly be demonized Several have followed suit and asked me about this. I wrote an answer in my book, Tough Topics, and plan on making this material available in two installments over the next two days, which is what we're going to go over today, one of the best articles I've ever read on the topic. I hope it proves instructive and helpful regardless of where you happen to land on this question. And I'll link these articles in the chat, I mean, in the description. I'll also link Sam Storms' page, give him credit, and then eventually... I will invite him on the channel to talk about this himself because we have some mutual friends so we will talk about this but let's look at his breakdown here 
I find it strangely intriguing that all of the thorny topics addressed in the book, the one under consideration often provokes more heat and contention than all others. So let's jump directly into the fray. And this topic of Christians having demons is the most contentious and the most divisive divisive topic when it comes to spiritual things in the Bible and casting out devils specifically. So he says, can a Christian be demonized? Can a Christian be indwelt by a demonic spirit? Which is what we're going to talk about here. Three answers have been given. Yes, no, and yes, no, which you'll, this will make sense as we go. But before I turn to evaluate these arguments, we need to define our terms. This is the most important part of this whole video tonight. Okay. And Brandon says, no, a Christian can have a demon period. Stay tuned, Brandon. We're glad you're here. We want you here. So you can, we can look at what the scripture says and reason together like mature adults. But this is the most important part of this entire night. It's right off the start, right off the beginning is what he says in the next paragraph. I want everyone to listen closely here. Clip this, share this with your friends and family. Some of you are probably wondering why, and I've been saying this for years, why I chosen the term demonization rather than the more popular demon possession. This may actually come as a surprise to you. This is very important, but the Bible never once talks about demon possession. Very important to know the Bible never once, and this is coming from a scholar, a guy who has a PhD who studied the, the Greek language. The Bible never once talks about demon possession. It was popularized by its appearance in the King James Version, although it appeared in other English versions prior to the 1611 edition, and he talks about here, um, that, should be re that should be reason enough to avoid using such language. But in addition, we need to consider the emotional impact of the phrase, which I believe detracts from an objective discussion of the subject. It is difficult for many to dissociate the concept of demon possession from scenes from the movie The Exorcist. I also point out the term possession implies ownership, and it's questionable to say that Satan or a demon own anything. So this is the most important argument here because demon possession does not appear until the 1611 King James Version, where they took the word daimonizomai, which is demonized, that's the Greek word, and you can Google this and it will show you, which literally means to be under the power of a demon. They translated that to the English word demon possessed. So now you read the Bible and say the man was possessed and you go, oh, a Christian can't be possessed because the demon can't own anything. But that word possessed is not even a biblical term. The devil doesn't type this in the chat. The devil does not own anything. So let's remove the verbiage, which I love that Sam Storm says this, remove the verbiage of possession or oppression. When it comes to casting out demons, possession and oppression are not biblically distinct so we don't need to use the terms because jesus never used the terms he simply cast out demons so by removing the nuance of oppressed and possessed you just say demonize can a christian be demonized yes can a christian be possessed no because possession is not a real thing the devil does not possess or own possession in the english speaks of ownership now, what guys will do, and I'm go going off here and we're going to keep going the article because we have a lot to cover tonight, but I'm not going to rush. I'm going to try to talk slow. What guys love to do is look up the word daimonizomai and say, oh, look, that translates to possessed. But you're still going with an English translation. The actual Greek usage is to be under the power of a demon. It does not mean to be possessed. That is an English translation. So if we stick directly to what the Bible says, the Bible speaks of demonize, okay? So this is the most important 
framework, and I'm glad he starts the article with it, and I'll have him on the channel to talk about this, because we again, we have some mutual friends, but this is what we're going to use. Demonization. So stop saying possessed, stop saying oppressed, it's why your family, your friends all want to argue with you. Stop using the words, this is a popularized term, it's, uh, the King James 1611 edition, but we should avoid using such language, okay? Avoid using language. Now let's look at the, what the Bible has to say. When we turn our attention to the New Testament, we discovered that there are four ways in which describes demonic influence. First, there is the Greek term, which we just talked about, talked about, daimonizomai, which is used 13 times in the New Testament, all in the Gospels. It's unfortunate that the King James always translates this word demon possession. And then he gives all the verses, which we'll go into some verses tonight. But again, we have a, four, different art, four different authors to cover. And so, yeah, we're not going to go into every single verse, but he gives a bunch of verses of what the Bible is using. What's important to note is that every case of demonization involves someone under the influence or control in varying degrees of an indwelling spirit. This is important to underline here and note, and I'll post the article later in the description, okay? An indwelling evil spirit. So demons always indwell. So if a Christian be indwelled by a demon, well, a demon only indwells. Where else does a demon live but inside of people? The word demonization is never used in the New Testament to describe someone who is merely oppressed. Okay, very important. The word demonization is never used to describe someone who's merely oppressed or harassed. So now people say, well, a Christian could be oppressed or harassed, but it's never used in the New Testament to describe that. For all of you that disagree, let's just be honest here. And then you just describe someone or attacked or tempted by the demon, a demon. So if you're attacked or tempted or oppressed, you're not demonized. You don't need deliverance. That's what this is saying. We're talking about demonization. In every case, reference is made to a demon either entering, dwelling in, or being cast out of the person. Matthew 4, 20, uh, 4, 24 and Matthew 5, 22 are the first to appear exceptions to this rule, but the parallel passage, Mark 1, 32 and 7, 24 through 30 indicate otherwise. Hence, okay, and I won't go super long on every part like I am this part, but hence, to be demonized in the strict sense of that term is to be inhabited by a demon with varying degrees of influence or control. So let's be clear and just break this down real quick. Demonized, the Greek word, means to be under the power of a demon. When Jesus dealt with demons all throughout the New Testament, he only cast them out, okay? He only cast them out, meaning demons only indwell people when it comes to deliverance. To be attacked by a demon or, and that's a whole nother topic, or harassed is not to be indwell and is not to be demonized. So now we're going to keep going with the argument of, well, how can a Christian be indwelt? On 16 occasions in the New Testament, reference is made to a person who has a demon, has. It's twice used of John the Baptist by his accusers. Six times the enemies of Jesus use it of him. So they tell Jesus, you know, he has a demon. Not on you. They accuse him of having a demon in him. Eight times it describes someone under the influence of a demonic spirit. And he gives verse references. You can look all these up later. Hence, to have a demon is to be demonized or inhabited by a demon. And that's the argument we're really bringing here is demons indwell, can a Christian be indwelt, okay? On two occasions, and we're gonna go long tonight, I can already tell. On two occasions, Mark 1, 23 and Mark 5, 2, we find reference to someone who is with a demon or a spirit. To say that person is with a demon is to say he has a demon, which is to say he is demonized or that he's indwelt by demons. Let me say that again for some of you. To say that a person is with a demon is to say he has a demon or is to say he's demonized or is to say he's indwelt by a demon. So what you're noticing is these are all the same terms. These are all, a lot of word semantics are confusing people. This is why I keep it simple. Are you demonized? Let's get you delivered. 
We don't need to worry about, well, what if this? Or what if I'm oppressed? What if I'm possessed? What if it's on you? What if it's, it doesn't matter. Are you demonized? It's, if you're demonized, it's indwelling you, okay? Finally, the terminology of being vexed with an unclean spirit is used only once in Acts 5, 16, okay? And it talks about they were vexed. In summary, if a demon indwells or inhabits a person, it's a case of demonization. Merely to be tempted, harassed, afflicted, or oppressed by a demon is not demonization. Demonization always entails indwelling. We are now ready to take note of three answers to our original question. Can a born-again Christian man or woman be inhabited or indwelt by a demonic spirit? And this is what we're going to go through. The next two articles is the arguments against and the arguments for. And then we'll look at Sam Storms, who is a doctorate, well-known author, very highly respected. You can see a bunch of his books here on the side. Okay. His conclusion at the end of this, which, and then if we have time, we'll go into Derek Prince, Don Dickerman, and also John Eckhart. But this is the most important articles I want to cover here. And I've never done this before, but I want to start doing content like this. Not just what Isaiah says, but also what these high-respected men of God that have been Christians five times the amount I've been a Christian. And I've been a Christian for 12 years. These guys, some of them, 40, 50 years. Several authors suggest that a believer can be demonized, but in a somewhat modified or restricted sense, based on the, doc the doctrine of trichotomy. And some of this will be deep. This is not really for baby Christians, but just stay with us. According to which a person is compromised of three faculties. And this would be where I m land, but I'm not, I'm malleable. I'm not so rigid that I'm stuck on this concept. So trichotomy is body, soul, and spirit. Most of you believe in a trichotomy. You believe that we are body, we are soul, we are spirit. They affirm that a demon can inhabit a Christian soul and body, but not a spirit, which is something you've heard me teach over and over again. The body is one's physical constitution. Okay, so that's your physical body. The soul is comprised of one's mind, will, and emotions. And the spirit isn't the element or faculty which relates to God and regeneration is born anew, sealed, and permanently dwelt by the Holy Spirit. So this is something I've taught. This is, I, I would rely on a trichotomy view. But again, he's going to argue. Although this view is becoming increasingly popular, I find it lacking in several ways. In the first place, there's no explicit evidence for this in scripture. Nowhere, in, and this is why I say I'm not stuck on it, but nowhere in the Bible do we read of a demon dwelling in a person's soul or body, but being excluded from the spirit. So he's saying we don't see demons dwelling in just souls or, or bodies, but not in the person's spirit. Furthermore, this view is based on the validity of trichotomy, which is 1 Thessalonians 5.23, which we'll read for context. Now, now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely and may your whole spirit, soul, and body be kept blameless to the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, let me note this. This is really one of the only places where we see this idea of trichotomy in scripture. A doubtful doctrine. And he says, see Mark 12, 30. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and with all your mind, and with all your strength. So he's saying this Mark pretty much contradicts the trichotomy view. Man is dichotomous. He is both material and immaterial, both physical and spiritual. The latter often called the soul and other times the spirit. On numerous occasions, scripture, spirit and soul are used interchangeably as simply different names for the same immaterial dimension of our constitution, thus prohibiting us from drawing a rigid distinction between the two. Okay. I would also argue that the whole person is renewed by the Holy Spirit, not just one faculty or one element of the person. To restrict a demon to a person's soul and body, excluded from his spirit, is to suggest that there is a rigid spatial compartmentalization of the beings. But where is the soul in the body? Where is the spirit? These are biblically illegitimate questions. It is an attempt to apply physical categories to spiritual realities. Again, like I said, I'm not stuck on the spirit, soul, and body. I'm very interested in what he's talking about with this. Clinton Arnold um, 
offers a slightly different interpretation without drawing a distinction between body, soul, and spirit. And he refers to the core of the person, the center of his or her being, or the ultimate nature and identity. And this within each person that undergoes a radical, indeed supernatural transformation in, in the new birth, he explains, at the center of this person's being now lies a desire for God and a passion to please him in every aspect, respect. This is the place of the Holy Spirit's dwelling. No evil spirit can enter here or cause the Holy Spirit to flee. To extend the image of the temple, we might say that this is the invaluable Holy of Holies. Here again, we see an attempt to restrict the access of a demonic spirit to certain places or spiritual regions within the individual. Does Arnold's model successfully avoid the weakness, weaknesses and criticism of the trichotomous theory noted above? I don't think so. Okay, arguments against the demonization of Christians. Now let's look at why are people so against it and what are the arguments? Those who insist that Christians cannot be inhabited or indwelt by a demonic spirit appear to have several lines of evidence. So let's look at each one. Okay, so let's look at the criticism, then we'll look at the cons, first the cons, then the pros, or not the cons and pros, but let's look at the objections to it, and then we'll look at the arguments for it. They begin by pointing out biblical texts which describe the defeat of Satan, especially John 12, 31. Now is the judgment of the world, the rule of this world is cast out. John 16, 11, concerning judgment, the rule of the world is judged. Colossians 2, 14. Hebrews 2, 14 through 15. You guys can rewind this and I'll also post these articles in the description. 1 John 3, 8. The argument is that if Satan has been judged, stripped, and his work destroyed, 1 John 3, 8, the Son of God came to destroy the works of the devil, how can he or demons indwell a believer? Okay, so this is the argument here. But these passages do not themselves settle the issue. It is true that Jesus bound, Matthew 12, 25 to 29, the strong man, i.e. Satan, but it's equally the case that Satan can exert a significant influence in the lives of believers. Jesus has defeated the devil, but we must also continue to pray that God would guard us against the attacks of the evil one. John 17, 15. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. On the one hand, all demonic powers have been subjected to the lordship of Jesus and placed under his feet. Uh, lots of scripture here. Lots of scripture, Ephesians 1, 19-22. But on the other hand, Paul warns us that there's still a struggle against principalities and powers and forces of this present darkness. We've been delivered from Satan's domain and Jesus has triumphed over the demonic, but Satan can still hinder Paul's missionary journey. 1 Thessalonians 2, 18. We wanted to come to you, but again, Satan hindered us. My point is simply that the reality of Satan's defeat does not eliminate. Let me highlight this. The reality of Satan's defeat does not eliminate his activity and influence in the present age. Very important. Appeal is also made to texts which describe the promise of divine protection. Okay, so the idea that Satan's been defeated, that he has no power, is just not true. That's what he, argument one he's saying. And then the second argument is, describe the promise of divine protection. Yes, Jesus instructed us to pray deliverance from the evil one. Matthew 6, 13. Lead us not into temptation. This is the prayer Jesus told us to pray but deliver us from the evil one. So Jesus tells us to pray a prayer of deliverance, but this is clearly dependent and not automatic on our prayer for it. So it's dependent on our prayer, not automatic. What happens if we don't pray? No one can snatch us from the hand of our heavenly father. It's John 10, 22. But if a demon can indwell a believer, wouldn't that mean our security is in doubt? And then he says, no, because this text simply asserts the same truth we find in Romans 8, 35, namely, that nothing, not even a demon, can separate us from the love and life we have in God. It says nothing about the possibility of demonization. Okay? Very important. So namely, this is asserting that nothing can separate us from the love of God. But it, but Sam Storm says, it doesn't say anything about the possibility of demonization. And I know the mods are probably 
having a filled day here with all of you in the chat, but it's okay, mods, just you have the night off. Who cares? Let them go. I'm grateful, as I'm sure you are, that Jesus prayed in John 17, 15, that the Father would guard us against the enemy. So look at Jesus' prayer here. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. That's John 17, 15. So he says, I'm grateful that Jesus prayed that the Father would guard us against the enemy. But this text cannot mean that Jesus wanted the Father to make us invulnerable to demonic attack. So for all of you that say a Christian can't have a demon, uh, uh, mods are moderators that moderate the chat. And ban people, mute people, all that. Okay, so what he's saying is, Jesus prays, but Jesus did not make us invulnerable to demonic attack. So if you say a demon can't indwell a believer, we're somehow now invulnerable to the devil attacking us if we open that door. Indeed, it was after this prayer that Jesus told Peter of Satan's request to sift him like wheat. This prayer is more likely our eternal preservation, which is what I've always taught, or it may be that the fulfillment or answer is that dependent on our uh, availing ourselves to the Father's protection. Paul prays in 2 Thessalonians 3.3 that we would be kept or protected from Satan. But again, we must ask ourselves, kept or protected what regarding the enemy? And on what, if any, conditions are we are the uh, conditions that we are responsible to meet? The promise of protection does not rule out a attack or a temptation of the enemy. And then he gives verses you can go look at. Lots of verses here tonight. Therefore, either this is promising pertaining to eternal preservation of the believer or it's a promise of condition upon the obedient response of the believer. It is a promise based on the truth, verse 4. And then Fred Dickinson explains, The promise then is for those who walk in obedience to the Lord. Satan will not be able to take them unaware and render them weak, unfaithful, and unproductive in the Christian life and service. It is a great promise for the obedient and watchful Christian. But it's not a blanket of protection promise to all. Let me say that again. It's not a blanket or protection promise to all. It does not promise that no Christian will ever be attacked or seriously affected by demonic forces. It does not address the matter of demonization. So very important here. These are not addressing demonization. These are poor arguments. One of the most encouraging texts in the New Testament is 1 John 4, 4, where the apostle assures us that greater is he who is in us than he who is in the world, i.e. Christ, i.e. Satan. But this text does not mean that all Christians are always automatically guaranteed or never to be deceived by error. It does, it does mean that we need not ever be deceived. The Holy Spirit is more powerful than Satan. Often here references made to 1 John 5.18 that the assurance the enemy cannot touch the believer. We know that everyone who's born of God does not keep on sinning and he who's been born of God protects him and the evil one does not touch him. Okay, so he says, I hear it said the argument is made that makes little sense. On one hand, the evil one cannot touch a Christian and yet on the other hand, he could conceive conceivably indwell him. But let's think about this more closely. For one thing, we can't press the term touch to exclude the attack and influence of Satan according to 1 Peter 5.8. It's possible to be devoured by the devil. And let's look at 1 Peter 5, 8. Be sober-minded and watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a lion, seeking someone to devour. So it's possible to be devoured by the devil, but then in one hand, we're saying we can't be touched by the devil. We should also consider Revelation 2.10, where Jesus himself says that Satan can imprison and even kill Christians. And this is uh, Revelation 2.10. Do not fear what you're about to suffer. The devil's about to throw some of you into prison. These are Christians, of course. That you may be tested for 10 days and you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death and I'll give you the crown of life. Okay? So whatever touch means, it does not suggest that all Christians are automatically insulated against demonic attack. Also, to touch a believer may mean to rob him of salvation. If also then Satan cannot grasp so as to destroy the spiritual life of the believer. Finally, it may be well that the promise is conditional, perhaps suspended on the fulfillment of verse 21. Clearly, no Christian can be swallowed up by the Satan or robbed of their salvation, life or love of the Father. He or she cannot be owned by Satan, 
okay? Nor separated from the love of God in Christ. But none of these texts explicitly rule out the possibility of demonization. The promises of protection are two sorts. Either a promise pertaining to the security of the believer's salvation or a promise dependent on the believer taking advantage of the resources supplied by the Spirit. Another line of argumentation, okay, is based on texts which describe the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit. Now we're going to go into how can a demon and the Holy Spirit dwell in the same place? The argument is this. A demon cannot dwell within a believer because the Holy Spirit lives there. And that's the number one most popular argument. So a demon can't dwell there if the Holy Spirit lives there. Since the Spirit is greater and more powerful than any demon, there's no possibility that he would grant access into a Christian's heart. But I must ask again, is this protection against demonic invasion automatic? What if the believer grieves the Holy Spirit through repeated and unrepented sin? What if the believer fails to faithfully and prayerfully adorn himself or herself with the armor of God? Ephesians 4, uh, Ephesians 6. Several texts are relevant to this issue. In Psalms 5.4 we read, For you are not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil may not dwell with you. Does this text really suggest that God cannot dwell alongside an evil spirit inside of a person? Observe that the two lines, verse 4, are in synonymous parallelism, i.e. evil may not dwell with you, is simply another way of God saying, do not delight in wickedness. The point is not that God cannot be in close spatial proximity with evil. We must not forget that the omnipresence God is in spatial proximity with everything. Let me say that again. We must not forget that the omnipresent God is in close spatial proximity with everything. The point of this passage is simply to say that God detests evil and God has no fellowship with it. Matthew 12, 43 through 45 is a famous passage that needs to be cited in full. Jesus says, and we're going to, again, I'm not going to rush through this tonight. How long are we in right now? We are 30 minutes in. Okay, I'm not rushing. This may go to one hour, two hours, five hours. I don't know, but I'm not rushing. Matthew 12, this is exhaustive. 12, 43 through 45 is a famous passage that needs to be cited in full. Jesus says, when the unclean spirit goes out of a person, it passes through waterless places seeking rest, but finds none. Then it says, so this is the demon talking. Then it says, type one, if you want me to take my time, he the demon says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds the house empty, swept and in order. Then it goes and brings seven other spirits more evil than itself. And they enter and dwell there. And the last state of the person is worse than the first. So it will be with this evil generation. The argument that if that house is occupied, presumably by Jesus or the Holy Spirit, demons can enter. But does this mean that the person himself cannot open the door to intrusion, to intrusion by a demon through willfully unrepented sin or adultery? Also, the text does not say that the demon would have done had he found his previous home occupied. It does not say that in itself would have prevented his entry. It may well have made re-entry more difficult, but not necessarily impossible. So I hope you guys are tracking with this. These, these verses are not saying a demon cannot indwell a Christian as many would believe. In 1 Corinthians 10, 21, it says you cannot drink the cup of the Lord or the cup of demons. You cannot partake at the table of the Lord or the table of demons. Paul warns Christians you cannot drink of the... Okay, he just reiterates it. And then he says this, but the cannot in Paul's language refers to a moral, not a metaphysical impossibility. If I say to a Christian who's contemplating committing adultery, but you cannot do that. I do not mean that in a physically impossible for him to commit adultery, but that it's morally or spiritually incompatible with this being a Christian. Whoa, that's a good point. Look at what he says here. Okay. I want to say that again, because this is very important. The cannot, the cannot, like a demon, you cannot dwell at the same table with demons. The cannot 
refers to a moral, not a metaphysical impossibility. If I say to a Christian who is contemplating committing adultery, you cannot do that. I do not mean that in a physically impossible for him to commit adultery, but that it's morally or spiritually incompatible with this being a Christian. In other words, you cannot expect to enjoy close intimacy with Christ and simultaneously give yourself to the influence of demons. It is a moral and spiritual contradiction to affirm your love for God while you simultaneously expose yourself to the influence of demons by participating in activities in which they energize. In fact, I'm far, in fact, far from ruling out the possibility of Christians participating or fellowshipping with demons, Paul warns us to be careful of that very thing. Okay? This is making it very clear. Two texts in the Corinthian letters describe Christians as the temple of the Holy Spirit, in whom he dwells the danger in being unevenly yoked with unbelievers and seeking fellowship with darkness. And these are what I read earlier. The arguments from these texts at first glance seem persuasive. Surely a Christian cannot simultaneously be both the temple of God and the temple of a demon. And I, I read those in the beginning of the broadcast, both of these verses that do not are out of context. They're not talking about demons. They're talking about unbelievers and then sexual sin. And it's interesting. He uses both the verses I used here. And look what he says here. But Paul is not referring in 2 Corinthians 6 to physical impossibility of a Christian being yoked in fellowship with evil or with an unbeliever. The fact is we know it happens all the time. So Paul is not saying light and darkness cannot coexist. Paul is actually saying they do coexist and that's the problem. So he says, this happens all the time. It is possible. Rather, he's denouncing the moral or spiritual incongruity of such fellowship. The temple of God has no moral or spiritual harmony with idols. Therefore, avoid entangling alliances. Not that it can't be, okay? Not that a demon can't dwell, an unbeliever in light and darkness can't dwell. It's that they shouldn't. They're incompatible. The argument from 1 Corinthians 3 is based on the idea, it was getting good, that a demon indwelling a Christian is a spatial and spiritual impossibility. As for the former, it's argued that there's not enough room, that being for a demon to indwell a Christian, for both the Holy Spirit and a demonic being to coexist in the same human body. It would be too crowded. But this is to think of spatial beings in physical terms. I would ask as I would as easily ask, how can the Holy Spirit and the human spirit both dwell in the same body? Wouldn't that be just as crowded? Mary Magdalene had seven demons inhabiting her. The gathering demoniac was inhabited by about 6,000 demons, enough at any rate to enter and destroy 2,000 pigs. And if the presence of the Holy Spirit crowds out, quote unquote, crowds out demons, then demons couldn't exist anywhere because the Holy Spirit exists everywhere. Did you guys just see that, what he just said here? Look at this. What If the presence of the Holy Spirit crowds out demons, then demons couldn't exist anywhere because the Holy Spirit exists everywhere. That's powerful because people say, well, how could a demon and the Holy Spirit dwell in the same place? Well, friend, the Holy Spirit dwells everywhere. How could a demon dwell anywhere if that's the case? If that's the case, poor logic, how could a demon dwell anywhere? That's a good point there. Some of y'all should use that argument. The second argument is that this would be a spiritual impossibility. That is to say, how can the Holy Spirit inhabit the same body with an unholy demon? But again... We must remember that the Holy Spirit, in certain sense, inhabits everything and everyone in the universe, even unbelievers. Of course, in the case of the latter, he does not indwell them in a saving or sanctifying way. The Holy Spirit is, after all, omnipresent. Okay, so again, this idea, how could a demon and the Holy Spirit be in the same place? Completely unbased. What are you talking about? The Holy Spirit's everywhere. He could, of course, be in the same place as a demon. That's like saying the Holy Spirit can't come to a club because there's demons in the club. What do you even mean? course the holy spirit can dwell where there's demons the holy spirit after all is omnipresent 
he I hope some of y'all are getting set free here. Some of you just you will never be convinced so you could just continue to uh, Live however you want to live But there's some of you that are actually here for truth and you want to be convinced and you're and you're interested in this stuff He dwells everywhere and again, this is not meme. This is Sam Storms. So this is his writings You may also recall from the book that uh, you may also recall from the book of Job that Satan had access to the presence of God Indicating that the issue is not of spatial proximity, but of personal relationship The Holy Spirit and demons are in close proximity when outside of the human body So why would they not be in close proximity while inside the human body? Finally, the Holy Spirit indwells the Christian even though Even I'm sorry the Holy Spirit indwells the Christian even though the latter still has a sinful nature or a sinful flesh In other words, if the Holy Spirit can inhabit the same body with an unholy human sin Why could he not inhabit the same body of someone with an unholy demon? It strikes me that the force of this argument appears to be a more emotional than biblical. Thank you, Sam Storms. When are you going to be on the podcast? It strikes me that the force of this argument appears to be more emotional than biblical. People always emotionally react. Pastors get emotional. Oh, how could a demon dwell in the same? It's like, first of all, you've never even cast out a devil in your life. So how do you know what anything about demons? Second of all, you're look, you're thinking physical, spatial, again, spatial consciousness. You're not thinking of eternal spiritual dimensions. We're, we're talking about an unseen realm that has no space. How could the demon and the Holy Spirit be in the same area? We're not talking about spatial. We're not talking about your bedroom. Okay, so it's an emotional response, not a biblical response. The idea of the Holy Spirit and a demon living inside a believer is too close, too intimate of contact. It's like, oh no, it just feels bad to say, so people are afraid and sh uh, shy away from it. The thought of it is emotionally provocative and scandalous. It violates one's sense of spiritual propriety. The feeling is that God simply wouldn't allow it. His love for his own is too great to let demonic influence get that far. But we must also keep in mind that the only criterion for making a decision on an issue such as that is not what seems or feels proper, but what the scripture explicitly asserts. Wow. This guy, I'm going to link these in the description. Go show Sam Storm some love because he is, if, I got to get his books. This guy's no joke. There are a number of other miscellaneous arguments that I should mention. For example, I've been asked, how can a Christian who is possessed by Christ be possessed by a demon? But in this question, the word possessed is being used in two entirely different senses. To say that one is possessed by a demon, although in and itself is an unbiblical term. If you guys are just jumping in, we already discussed how possessed does not exist. Literally, possessed is not a biblical thing. So he says, although it's not, a, it's an unbiblical term. So if you say that person's possessed, unbiblical. There's no possessed or oppressed when it comes to demons in the Bible. It's demonized. That's a 1611 King James translation. Okay. So to say that one is possessed by a demon, although it's an unbiblical term, is to say that he or she is severely influenced by spirit. To say that one is possessed by Christ is to say that he or she is owned by the Lord because he's been purchased. They've been purchased by his blood. Another argument goes something like this, and we're about to go into part two of why Christians can be indwelt. Because we, we've already debunked the why they can't and the poor arguments of how could the devil dwell and a demon, all these poor arguments. We, he's already gone over those and refuted them with scripture. How can a Christian in, who is in Christ have a demon in, in him or her? Again, words are being used in a way that provokes an emotional response but lacks theological substance. To be in Christ refers to eternal salvation, where to say a demon is in a believer refers to influence or powers of persuasion. Perhaps you've heard, perhaps you've heard it said that the internal struggle of the Christian is portrayed in the New Testament as between the Holy Spirit and the flesh, not the Holy Spirit and a demon. Let's say that again because we hear this all the time. 
Perhaps you've heard it said that the internal struggle of the Christian in the New Testament is between the Holy Spirit and the flesh, not the Holy Spirit and a demon. And this is going to make all you Reformed guys not happy because you always say this. It's not about fighting demons. It's about fighting your flesh. However, in the first place, this is an argument from silence. Or, to put it another way, what biblical text denies or precludes precludes the Holy Spirit from fighting against an indwelling demon. Also, if a Christian yields to the flesh and grieves the Holy Spirit, wouldn't this be an open door to demonic presence? Finally, Ephesians 6 says that our primary struggle is against the demonic. Although there's no explicit reference to this being an internal battle, there's nothing here that precludes it being such, especially if we fail to employ the full armor. And the next article we will look at the argument supporting the possibility of a Christian being demonized. So these are the poor arguments of a Christian can't have a demon. Now let's go into part two. Again, I told you I have lots to cover tonight of an argument of a Christian can't have a demon. In yesterday's article, we looked at arguments against, and I'm loving this. If y'all aren't learning, I am. Yesterday's article, we looked at the arguments against the possibility of a born-again believer being demonized. Both article and the article that follows are for my chapter on the topic in my book, Tough Topics. So if you guys haven't got the book, order the book, Tough Topics by Sam Storms. He goes over all this in more depth. Arguments now supporting the demonization of Christians. We've looked closely at most, and then he'll give his conclusion at the end of this, and then we'll jump into some other guys. And if we have time tonight, for not like two hours, three hours, we'll jump back to his third bonus article, which has a lot of stuff about this. But he says, we've looked closely, if not at most, if not all, the arguments used to prove that Christians cannot be demonized. My conclusion is that none of these texts or conclusions drawn from them conclusively make the case. We now turn our attention to the text that may suggest a Christian can be indwelt by a demonic spirit. And of course, you guys know, I do believe 100% a a demon can indwell a Christian. Okay. This afternoon, I did a two-hour deliverance on a Christian for sure Christian, that was indwelt by demonic spirits. So 100%, of course they can. I don't know any legitimate deliverance ministers that teaches a Christian can't have a demon, but let's talk about the fact that a a demon can indwell a believer. And again, if you're just jumping on, we've already covered that demons always indwell. Demons are not on top of us. Demons are not on the side of us. They're always indwelling. Some say you don't pronounce your T's. What does that mean? Spirit, is that on a T? We begin with those passages that describe the reality of demonic activity and attack. I'm, I'm describing T's all over the place. What are you talking about? My T's have T's. Activity and attack. Most of these texts fail to prove the thesis that a Christian can be demonized because they fail to say anything about the location of the activity related to the individual. For example, 2 Corinthians 2.11 asserts that Satan has a strategy to bring division to the body of Christ. No one would deny that Satan seeks to divide and disrupt, to exploit disagreements, or to intensify unforgiveness, but nothing explicitly says... Uh, Nothing explicitly is said here about demonization. 2 Corinthians 11, 3-4 speaks of the dangers that the Corinthian believers might receive a different spirit from the one they had earlier accepted. What does spirit mean? Is that a demonic being or could it be an attitude, an influence, or principle? And what does receive mean? Is it an invasion, a subsequent inhabitation, or perhaps tolerance, attentiveness, etc.? The most likely explanation is that the Corinthians were tolerating the presence and the influence of false teachers who were energized by demons. We're all familiar with 2 Corinthians 12, 7-8, where Paul's thorn in his flesh came to him through a messenger of Satan. Although God used a demonic being to keep Paul humble, no one would wish to conclude that he was demonized. If he were, would would he, he have rejoiced in its effects? Ephesians 4, 26-27 is a far more important passage. Okay, let's read this then. Be angry and do not sin. 
Do not let the sun go down in your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Okay. For here we see what might happen should the devil exploit the relational strands and tension that develop in the Christian community. Sidney Page is correct to point out that the devil is not credited with producing anger. That is the source is apparently to be found within the person him or herself. Nevertheless, anger can provide the devil with an opportunity to wreak havoc in the life of an individual and the community. It seems reasonable that Satan's activity in this regard would extend to other sin mentioned in the immediately subsequent context, stealing, unwholesome speech, bitterness, wrath, clamor, slander, malice, and unforgiveness. So what Sam Storms is saying is these give place to the devil. So it's a good argument that a Christian can, a Christian can give a place to the devil. And then the question would be, if we give a place to the devil, where is that place? If you don't believe a Christian can have a demon, then what place do you give the devil? Is he camping out in your front yard? Does he make a little house on your shoulder? Because I know you don't believe a Christian can't have a demon in them. So Paul says, if you do this, you give place to the devil. What place does that devil, does the devil take? And of course, the only logical conclusion is he enters into us because that's where demons dwell. They indwell people. Clinton Arnold points to Paul use of the term topos, translated foothold or opportunity. He argues that this word is often used in the New Testament to uh, New Testament for inhabited space. And then he gives more verses, a lot of verses to support this. I just don't have time to go over every single one. Even more to the point, says Arnold, are passages that illustrate the use of topos to refer to the inhabiting space of an evil spirit, such as Luke 11, 24 and Revelation 12, 7 through 8. Thus, he concludes that the most natural way to interpret the use of topos in Ephesians 4, 27, which is in give no opportunity to the devil. So what would we translate that to Greek? That's the Greek word there, is the idea of an inhabitable space. Paul is thus calling these believers to vigilance and moral purity so they do not relinquish the base of operations to demonic spirits. Very simple. That word opportunity is a space. It's an inhabitable space. If you give yourself over to these sins, you give space to a demon and the demon's able to come and dwell there. So if you don't want a demon, don't give him space. It's really not complicated. Everyone is familiar with Ephesians 6, 10 through 18 and Paul's passionate exhortation that we must put on the former of God to prepare ourselves for the onslaught of demonic attack. What happens to the believer who does not stand the strength of Christ, who does not put on the former of God, who does not therefore stand firm? There are a handful of passages that speak of satanic and demonic attack. First Thessalonians 2.18 says that Satan hindered Paul from making a desired visit to Thessalonica. The apostle describes the danger of a believer falling into a snare of the devil. Does this entail demonization? There's no way to know. The language itself neither implies nor precludes the possibility. Characteristics of later times is that people will come under the influence of demonic doctrine, perhaps even a form of mind control. Paul speaks of them as devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and the teachings of demons. But does this entail or require inhabitation? And does it have in mind born-again Christians or only professing or only professing believers who in fact know nothing of the saving grace of Jesus. Paul describes some as escaping from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. But these would appear to be unbelievers who Paul hopes and prays will come to saving faith through Timothy's ministry. It does beg, it does beg the question, of course, about what happens when a demonized person comes to saving faith. Does the Holy Spirit's activity in regenerating a person automatically result in deliverance or exorcism of the indwelling demon? Let me, say, let me say this again. Does the Holy Spirit's activity in regenerating, re regenerating a person automatically result in deliverance or exorcism of the indwelling demon? 
No text of which I'm aware of ever answers this question. So the art, so he, what he's saying is there's no text that he's aware of. And for sure that I'm aware of, cause he's way more educated than me. That would entail when you get saved an indwelling demon leaves you. This is just not the case. It's just not scriptural. James, re, James refers to a form of wisdom that is earthly, unspiritually, and demonic, and evidently envisions the possibility that a believer might act on the basis of it. But does this entail demonization? More explicit still is Peter's exhortation that we must be watchful in view of the fact that your adversary prowls seeking someone to devour. His counsel is that we humble ourselves and cast all of our anxieties on God and remain sober and alert. It seems reasonable to conclude that if we do not humble ourselves, if we do not cast our cares on him, if we're not sober, and if we're not alert, we may well be devoured by the devil. Devour means to swallow up. Lots of verses here as well. Nothing, however, is said explicitly about how or from where there is devouring takes place. I would think it's if given the opportunity, Satan or his demons can make a serious encroachment on the life of a believer. Simply being a Christian does not automatically insulate you from this sort of potentially devastating attack. On the other hand, if we resist the devil, we're assured victory. And a passage we looked at earlier, 1 John 4, 1 through 4, would be relevant to this debate only if some of the false teachers in whom the spirit of the Antichrist operated were Christians. This, however, is highly unlikely. We turn to texts where the experience of particular individuals is described. Balaam is often mentioned, but was Balaam a believer? Whatever answer we come to, nothing is said here of an indwelling demonic presence in his life. The case of Saul is more intriguing. Was, Paul a, was Saul a believer? Probably so. And then 1 Samuel 10, 9 says, he turned, his heart, he turned his back to leave Samuel. God gave him another heart, and all the, these signs came to pass that day. Because of his rebellion and sin, he came, un, sin, he came under demonic attack. However, the evil spirit said to come upon him, not into him. Does that fact this happened prior to Pentecost have any bearing on how we interpret it? The most helpful story, of, the most helpful of all is a story whom the woman was bent, uh, bent double. This is Luke 13, 10 through 17. Her condition has been identified by some, and then I, don't, I can't even try to pronounce that, which is the fusion of the vertebrae. But again, we ask, was she a believer? She glorified God immediately on being delivered and is called a daughter of Abraham. The latter may simply mean she was Jewish. Was she demonized? The New American Standard Bible reads, had a sickness caused by a spirit, where it literally reads, she had a spirit of infirmity or sickness. That's Luke 13, which is similar to the language of demonization, to have a spirit. Others have argued, however, that this narrative reads more like a simple healing than an exorcism. But even if true, that doesn't answer the question of whether or not the demon indwelt her. I would be remiss if I didn't mention the story of Ananias and Sapphira. Certainly they were both believers. And thank you, Sam Storms, for saying this. I don't know where y'all are at saying, Ananias and Sapphira were not believers. And I'm like, okay, so God's out here killing unbelievers? Of course, Ananias and Sapphira were believers. How could you even say they weren't believers? They literally sold what they had and gave half of it to the apostles, but God killed them because they lied about it. But let's let's look at this here. This is I think this is a strong argument. Certainly they are believers. It seems unlikely that the example of their deaths would have any reliance for the church if they were not. It seems unlikely that the example of their deaths would have any relevance for the church if they were not believers. Why are they even including that in the canon? Why are they even, why are they writing that down as scripture if these were unbelievers? What does that even matter to us? Exactly. It's important because they were believers. Were they demonized? Satan is said to have filled their heart. This verb filled is the same one used in Ephesians 5.18 for being filled with the Holy Spirit. But with what did he fill them? Did Satan fill them with self as to indwell them? Or did Satan fill their heart with temptation or the idea to hold back the money? At minimum, this is the case of a believer coming under powerful satanic influence. 
notwithstanding Satan's influence, they're responsible for their sin. They were disciplined with death. The point is, they could have said no to Satan's influence. So we know Satan did fill them. And what he's, he's being very fair because he's saying to what level, we don't know. But we know that Satan filled them. The case of the man in 1 Corinthians 5 who had been discovered having sexual relations with his stepmother is often mentioned in this debate. Paul counsels that he has to be delivered to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. This probably refers to his ex excommunication or expulsion from the fellowship of the church. To deliver to Satan refers to turning him out into, into the world, back into the domain of Satan. Destruction of the flesh does not refer to physical death, but anticipated effect of his, his expulsion. Namely, the mortification or crucifixion of his carnal appetite so that he may be saved, excuse me, in the day of Christ. So here we see yet another example of Satan intending one thing in a particular action while God intended something different. 1 Corinthians 10, 14-22 is a special case that probably comes as close to any text providing us explicit evidence we need to draw a firm conclusion on this debate. There, Paul urgently warns the Corinthians against participating in pagan feasts and then turning the fellowship of the Lord's Supper, uh, Supper and the meeting of the local church. Clearly, the apostle thought it possible for a Christian to become a participant, a sharer, or a partner with demons. The word he uses here is koinonia. Koin no, 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 koinonia? I don't know how to say that. He uses koinonia, typically used to describe fellowship or communion with a person or a thing. Is it the same word used in verse 16 for the sharing in or participating with entering into fellowship with Christ at his table? What does this mean? Is he referring to agreement, withholding of common purpose, or Christ or Christ and or a demon? It's merely a description of external attendance at a pagan fest, feast. Or does Paul have in mind an active sharing of an internal spiritual bond or link of fellowship with a demon? His point seems to be that when you sit and worship at the table of the Lord, or conversely, in the presence of idols, you open yourself up to the power and influence of one or the other. There is a sharing of intimate spiritual experience, an association of sorts, a relationship with the personal and powerful. But does it inhabit? But does it entail inhabitation of a demon? Conclusion. Clint Arnold responds, who thinks it's significant that no text explicitly describes the case of Christians being demonized. Although now I want you guys to note this. Everyone, pay attention. Although the epistles do not use the term demonization or have a demon describe the experience of a Christian, the concept is nevertheless present. The ideas of a demonic inhabitation and control are clearly part of the biblical teaching on what demons can do to saints. To limit ourselves to the same Greek words that the Gospels use to describe the phenomena of demonic influence could cause us to miss the concept expressed in different terms. So this is very important. No one, for instance, questions the validity of making disciples as part of the church's mission. So what he's saying here is people will say, well, in Paul's epistles, Paul never talks about people being demonized or us casting out demons. Okay. So he's saying, should we exclude all of that? Cause Paul doesn't explicitly describe it. And then he says, no one, for instance, uh, questions the validity of making disciples as part of the church mission. No one says we should stop making disciples now that Paul's writing his letters yet. Look at this chat yet the term disciple never appears in the new Testament after the book of acts. Wow. The term disciple never appears in the New Testament after the book of Acts. It would be quite erroneous to conclude that the concept of discipleship died in the early history of the church. What happened is that Paul, Peter, and John, and other authors have made use of very variety of other terms to describe the same reality. That, to me, is one of the most powerful arguments. 
So he says, should we say, well, de deliverance and demonization is no longer relevant because Paul doesn't write it in his epistles? And then he says, well, Paul also never uses the word disciple. So should we throw out discipleship? So again, this is an argument of silence just because the Bible, which the Bible is not exhaustive. If you guys don't know, I read the entire New Testament in one stream. It took me 12 hours. I went live for 12 hours straight and read the whole New Testament. And my point in saying that is it's not exhaustive. You can read the entire New Testament in one sit down. So we can't expect all of these terms to be defined by every single apostle and then throw it out and say, well, because the apostles didn't clearly write about it over and over, it must not be biblical. The gospels are enough. Jesus casting out demons is enough everywhere he went. It would seem then that the, the debate reduces to the question of the location of the demonic spirit relative to the believer rather than to their influence. In other words, all must concede that Christians, okay, so let's listen here. In other words, all must concede that Christians can be attacked, tempted, oppressed, devoured, and led into grievous sin. Satan can fill our hearts to lie. He can exploit our anger. He can deceive our minds with false doctrine. The question then is this, does all of this take place from outside our minds, spirit bodies, or could it be arise from a demon who is indwelling us? This is very, I know it's deep. It's very important for those in the chat that say a Christian can never have a demon. You agree because we just gave all the verses. You can be attacked, tempted, oppressed, devoured, and led into grievous sins. Satan can fill your heart to lie. According to the Bible, he can exploit our anger. He can deceive us with false doctrine. But all of that takes place outside of us. Are you guys seeing this? All of that takes place outside the mind. That's just completely faulty logic. Of course, it's indwelling and inside of us that this, this, these things take place. Now, let's be clear here. The New Testament, and I, and I love how fair Sam Storms is. He's not making any straw mans. He's not jumping to conclusions. He's not saying this proves a Christian could be a demon could be in a Christian. He's very fair. The New Testament does not supply an unequivocal indisputable answer to our question and i would agree i would agree the new testament does not give a solid indisputable answer to a christian can be indwelt by a demon he says nothing precludes the demonization of a believer nor does any text explicitly affirm it to, or provide us with undeniable example of a believer who is indwelt by a demon so of what practical significance is the question in other words now this is very important Will the location of the demonic spirit affect how I pray or minister to the person who's under attack? Will I use different words, different prayers, or different texts of scriptures? I am inclined to agree with Thomas White when he says, whether, very important here, whether a demon buffets me from a mile away, the corner of the room, sitting on my shoulder, whispering in my ear, clinging to my corruptible flesh, the result is the same. So again, why are we arguing word semantics? Why are we dividing over this? You believe it's outside. You don't believe a demon can indwell a believer. Is that, does that change the way you pray? And do you pray for people to get delivered? Because I don't think we should have a massive input in the subject if you don't even pray deliverance. Like we have all these guys out on YouTube teaching on Christians can't have demons or be indwelt, but they never do deliverance. So again, it's like you have zero experience or scripture to back up your claim because the scripture doesn't teach that a Christian cannot be indwelt. We've gone over that now for an hour and six minutes. Or is it in fact the same? Is it necessary for a demon to be spatially inside a person's mind to infuse or to suggest words, thoughts, or that person to hear voices, not their own? In the case of Peter, Matthew 16, Satan put the thought in his mind without indwelling him. 
People often report to hearing voices inside their head, not audibly, but ideas, words, images springing into their mind involuntarily. They have the same sense that the source is not themselves. Must a demon be inside for this to happen? Now, I'm, I'm glad he said that because in my opinion, I believe a demon has to be inside for this to happen. For words to pop in your head that are demonic, for images, involuntary perverted images, for example, to pop in your head involuntarily, I believe a demon must indwell you. And the reason why I know that is because right now, I don't have any perverted thoughts in my mind. And if a demon could give me those thoughts from outside of me, then every time I got up to preach, demons would be attacking me, giving me thoughts, speaking to me. So, like, how could you make the argument that a demon could give you thoughts if they're not even inside of you? And for those of you that say a Christian can't have a demon, they can't be indwelt, then you believe this. You believe a demon can just be outside you, whispering in your ear and giving you thoughts. And that's a poor theology because that means all day? Are they, when can they? All, all the time? So, involuntary thoughts, hearing voices, all these, I believe fully a demon must indwell you. He says, if I were to tell you that a Christian can be demonized, you might be frightened. Now, oh, I love this so much. Look, look at what he says here. If I were to tell you that a Christian can be demonized, you might be frightened. But if I were to tell you that a Christian could be hit by a passing car, you don't get scared. You simply take steps to stay out of traffic. You don't walk in the middle of a busy street. You don't live in, uh, you don't walk in the middle of a busy street. You don't live in constant worry or fear because there's a possibility you can get hit by a car. And if the car jumps the curb, it might chase, it chase and chase after you. You only would run inside the building for protection. So if a car did jump a curve, you'd run to the building for protection. Likewise, if it were possible for a Christian to be demonized, do not be afraid. Rather, follow the steps outlined in scripture, employ the protection made available by the Holy Spirit, and if you get chased anyway, seek refuge and protection in Christ. So, I would say, hey, do you know it's possible if you go outside and get hit by a car? You're like, okay, who cares? I'm not scared. Why? Because I don't play in traffic. I'm not out in the middle of the road messing around. So if I tell you it's possible for you to have a demon, why are you afraid? Stay in the protection of the Most High. Don't open the doors and you don't have to worry about an indwelling demon. But it is dangerous to say a Christian can't have a demon because you rob people the opportunity of seeking real deliverance. Okay, now here's the last paragraph and then I'll go into John Eckhart. Derek Prince, and then some of Don Dickerman. We'll see how far we can go, and we'll jump around a little bit. But again, this is not Isaiah Saldivar's opinion or Isaiah Saldivar's theology here. I'm showing you tonight, talking as slow as I can, I'm showing you tonight that I am not the only one that has this theology that Christians can't have demons. This is an orthodox theology on guys that practice this stuff, that have 40, 50 years of study, that have done 10, 20, 30,000 deliverances. So I'm not out here on the side of my neck saying, oh yeah, Christians could be indwelt by demons, some new doctrine. Friend, this is not a new doctrine. Okay, so here's his conclusion. We've been an hour and 10 minutes on these two articles. There's one final question to be asked. What place or level of authority should we give the testimony and experiences of other Christians in deciding this issue? In other words, what am I to conclude, if anything, from personal experience in having prayed for and ministered to people that I have great confidence are Christians and who give every indication of being demonized? Those who are dogmatically assured that a Christian cannot be demonized would not be impressed by any examples I might describe. Let me say that again. Those who are dogmatically assured that a Christian cannot be demonized would not be impressed by any examples I might describe. For them, in each case, there are two options, not three. Either the person is self-deluded and deceived others into thinking she's born again, or the demonic activity was not from within, but from without. 
the possibility that the person is both born again and inhabited by a demon is simply not entertained. I want to read this again because this is the sad reality. Someone who does not believe a Christian can be indwelt only has two conclusions. Conclusion one is they must not be a Christian, which is so poor to say. Conclusion two is the demon must be attacking them from the outside. But what Sam Storm says is why is there not a possibility that the person is truly born again and inhabited by a demonic spirit? Why are we not entertaining that? Here's the last sentence according to Sam Storms. So I will simply end with this tentative guarded conclusion. Yes. In the final analysis, my opinion is that a Christian can be demonized. Can we get some ones in the chat? So he gave you an exhaustive two-part article has this all in his book as well make sure to show him some love and i'll link all of it in the description right after the broadcast all these will be linked for further and i'll link a bonus article that's amazing that we probably won't have time because it's a whole live stream in itself but yes sam storm says in his guarded conclusion christians can be demonized and that is being indwelt by a demon being dwelt again the argument well how could the holy spirit dwell where demons are what do you even mean the holy spirit of course can dwell where demons are he dwells everywhere he takes up all space does that mean like anywhere a demon's at, he can't dwell? Of course he can. Okay, so now let's go into, we'll go into John Eckhart here. Let's see if this is all queued up properly. Yeah, it looks good. Let's go over a quick article of John Eckhart, another well-known, you know, this guy's well-known. He's done deliverance for years. I want to go through him. And then I want to go through, if we have time, some of Don Dickerman, some of Derek Prince here. But, but uh, John Eckhart says, there was a time when we taught in our church that Christians could not have demons. I preached long sermons stating that Christians could be oppressed, regressed, digressed, obsessed, and suppressed, but never possessed. We believe that a demon could be outside a Christian oppressing them, but never inside them. The reasoning I used to defend this position was that Jesus and the Holy Spirit could not live in the same body in which a demon resides, which is what we talked about earlier. The problem was our experience did not match our theology. When we ministered deliverance, we frequently prayed for people we knew were born again, spirit-filled believers, and they manifested demons. We had to face the fact that either our experience was wrong or our doctrine was wrong. We couldn't question our experience because we knew what we were seeing, so we began to question our theology. What is the basis of my theology? What verses am I using, and I'm, I'm saying this, to describe a Christian can't be indwelt by a spirit? Again, because we went over all the verses that are used tonight, and none of them speak of indwelling a Christian not being able to be indwelt. In our search for truth, we realized that in the Bible, Jesus tells us to cast devils out, not devils off. Okay, so demons come off of people. I mean, out of people, not off of people. So it's just not biblical to say, yeah, a Christian could be oppressed and harassed and just cast the demon off because Jesus never cast demons off of anybody. Obviously, for something to come out, it must be in. We finally came to the conclusion that our interpretation of the Bible had been wrong. Now I'm convinced not only can a Christian have demons, but also there are demons that operate in the realm of theology, encouraging us to argue and debate endlessly over doctrine rather than meeting the needs of the people who are hurting. Demons actually help to promote the teaching that a Christian cannot have a demon because they gain strength from staying hidden. Let me say that again. This is so good. Demons, can I highlight it this way? Demons actually promote the teaching that Christians cannot have demons because they gain, they gain strength from staying hidden. They can operate in their destructive ways without being challenged. Some may argue that a believer cannot be possessed, but the dismaying fact remains that born-again Christians, including leaders, are experiencing difficulties that can find no solution in natural infirmities or endless conflict between flesh and spirit. It's time to acknowledge that we are dealing with real people who have real problems and that God did not save and commission us so we can argue over doctrine. 
He called us into ministry so we can help others who are hurting, wounded, and bruised. Again, I did a deliverance for two hours before this broadcast. I was on Zoom with someone and we spent two hours and they got fully delivered. So I'm actually doing this. I'm not just preaching it, sitting in my office and calling out other people and saying, this is why this can't be. We're actually doing what the Bible says to do and we're practicing it. So our theology is not just coming from, well, the Greek and this and the text, which we did for an hour and 20 minutes. It's also from experience. When you come into contact with someone who's controlled by demons, the answer is to cast the devils out, not to argue about whether the person's a Christian. This is a good point John Eckhart makes. Because when people come and say, I'm demonized, why are we saying, oh, you must not be a Christian? We're arguing if the person's a Christian or not. Just cast the demon out. Like, let's see you cast the demon out. Let's see you stop arguing every single day, like a seventh grader, about this topic, and just cast the demon out then. The answer is to bring help to that person possessed or not possessed i realize i'm not the only believer who has ever had an erroneous idea about christians being possessed and the sensationalized picture hollywood has painted of demon possession has not helped it has led us to believe that if we say a christian can be possessed we're saying he can be fully owned or controlled by the devil and will manifest hollywood style head spinning eyes popping out the word possessed and this is the same across all of these guys the word possessed is an unfortunate translation because it connotes ownership and we know that the devil cannot own a Christian. That is, have complete control over him. Again, possession is not biblical. The devil can't own anything. But in the Bible, there's no real distinction between being possessed and being oppressed, digressed, suppressed, obsessed, and so forth. All these terms mean that a person is, to some degree, under the influence of a demon, which is the actual Greek translation. Personally, I do not have as much of a problem with the word possessed as other Christians do. So he doesn't really have a problem with the word I do. I have a problem with the word possessed and oppressed because it causes massive confusion. I would never use the word possessed or oppressed. It's demonized. So that's what the Bible uses the term. Every time you see the word possessed in the Bible in the King James or going forward, it's demonized. And again, you guys can rewind. I'm not going to go over that again because we've been going an hour and 20 minutes. And we've already talked about that in the very beginning of the broadcast. But later, rewatch the video and you'll see us break that down. When I looked up possessed in the dictionary, I discovered that one of the definitions is to occupy. My contention is that if a demon occupies your big toe, he possesses that part of you. It doesn't mean he possesses your spirit, soul, and body, but he occupies even a small portion, such as a physical organ in your body, as a spirit of infirmity would. There's possession to some degree. Okay. So he goes on about cancer in the body. Let's see what he, let's see his conclusion. Uh, covenant, right? Okay. We might be done with this article. So we already covered the Syrophoenician woman, children's bread. Let me see if I can find one part I was looking for. Um, okay. Let's go into, okay. Let's just go to his conclusion. We must accept the reality that we've been commissioned to minister to God's covenant people. And part of our responsibility is to provide them their covenant right to deliverance. If we deprive them of it on the base of some erroneous theological doctrine, then we are denying them what's rightfully theirs. And we cannot call ourselves ministers of the new covenant. Let's do as Jesus did and serve the children's bread to those who are in need. Okay, let's now turn our attention to, let me pull this article up. Let's do Derek Prince here, who is a literal Greek scholar. Let's look up Derek Prince's here let me pull up my kindle there we go okay let's see as a christian okay this will work this will work let's pull up Derek prince's i want to read this excerpt from his book do christians ever need deliverance from demons and then he says the sixth question is one i've been asked more than any other and this again Derek prince is a greek scholar often it is asked in an uncredulous un tone of voice implying the answer is expected no do Christians ever need deliverance from demon? Often people just say no. At one time, an official publication of a major denomination classified Don Basham and me as heretics. Well, 
This is so you're telling me that like 50 years ago, people were still calling deliverance ministers heretics. Wow, I thought it was a new thing as heretics because we were casting demons out of Christians. What are we supposed to do? I asked Don leave the demons in them. I love this because that's the thing is like we're called. Oh, you're a heretic for believing and casting demons out of Christians. And it's like, oh, so we just leave the demons there because you don't believe it and you don't practice it and you call us heretics. We just leave the demons in there. And this is Derek Prince, and the book is They Shall Expel Demons. This is uh, chapter 16. The charge against us was based, of course, on the assumption that Christians could never have demons that would need to be cast out. Later, this charge was apparently forgotten because churches belonging to that denomination have since invited me to minister deliverance. In more than 30 years, I've never heard or read or reasoned a scriptural presentation of the doctrinal position that Christians can never need deliverance from demons. Those who believe this, as said in chapter 5, seem to consider it so obvious that it needs no support from scripture. So in other words, there's no scriptural support for a Christian not needing deliverance or not being, and he says, they're so convinced they think, I guess we don't even need support from scripture because there is no scriptural support. But the implication of such a position can be, to say the least, surprising. A Christian young man told me that Brother Jones, a well-known evangelist, had prayed for him and that he'd been delivered from a demon of nicotine. I thought, Brother Jones doesn't believe a Christian can have a demon, I replied. You're right, the young man answered, but when Brother Jones prayed for me, he didn't know I was already a Christian. Wow, listen to this, okay? Oh, that's good. A Christian young man told me that Brother Jones, a well-known evangelist, prayed for him and he'd been delivered from the demons of nicotine. I thought Brother Jones doesn't believe a Christian can have a demon, I replied. You are right, the young man answered. But when Brother Jones prayed for me, he didn't know I was already a Christian. That left me pondering. So imagine you go up to an evangelist that teaches Christians can't have demons and you pray, hey, will you deliver me? I know you don't cast demons out of unbelievers, but we are believers, but will you deliver me? And then they deliver you and you go, oh, by the way, I was a Christian. What? So does that mean now you never had a demon? Does that mean now you never needed deliverance? Like, again, totally, totally unbased to say a Christian can't have a demon or be indwelt. And, and I know, I know the heresy hunters are here. They're in the comments. They're in the chat. All of, all of their um, followers are getting content. We know you're here getting your content for them. Like, how about just trying to create your own content and read the Bible? Like, why do you always have to be here clipping videos? And I know this is going to give them plenty of weeks of fresh content. So... You guys can enjoy all the free content you're getting here of Azir Sullivan added again. I just wonder when they're going to be bored of making the exact same video. I've already said it a thousand times. I believe deliverance is for today. I'll say it again for you. I believe Christians can have demons. I do not believe in possession. I do not believe in oppression. I'll keep saying it over and over and you can make the same videos. I just like wonder when are you guys going to get bored of watching the same videos of them saying Isaiah believes in deliverance. Like 10 years later, I'm still going to believe this. So it just confuses me. That's a side note. In that case, I said to myself, it would seem that unbelievers have an unfair advantage over Christians because they can receive... Oh, this is so good. Listen to this. In that case, I said to myself, it seems that unbelievers have an unfair advantage over Christians because they can receive prayer for deliverance from a demon, but once they become Christian, they're no longer eligible. Derek Prince. Derek Prince says, you don't believe Christians could have demons? So you're saying unbelievers have a more of an advantage because now that you're a christian you're not allowed to have deliverance prayer you're not eligible for deliverance prayer so it's crazy the term christian means different things to different people so before i proceed i need to clarify my use of the word i will base my definition on john 1 11 through 13. 
Jesus came to his own and his own did not receive him. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right, literally authority, to become children of God. And this guy's literally, a, uh, Derek Prince was a well-known Greek scholar who, who studied the Greek for years. Even those who believe in his name were born out of blood, of flesh, will of man, but of God. By Christian, I mean someone who has repented of his or her sin through personal faith, received Jesus as Savior and Lord. And as a result, that person has been born of God that is born again. Another way to describe Christian is someone who has fulfilled the condition of salvation stated in Mark 16, 15, excuse me, through 16. Such a person has heard and believed the gospel, been baptized, and is therefore saved. Can a person like this subsequently need deliverance from demons? This depends partly on how, on how the person was brought to salvation or the new birth. In the ministry of Philip in Samaria, the people received manifest deliverance from demons and later believed and were baptized in water. It would be reasonable to assume that most of them needed no further deliverance. Yet even, there, even here, there is noteworthy exception, Simon the sorcerer, who is among those who believed and were baptized. Later, however, when offered, Peter's, offered Peter money for the right to impart the Holy Spirit, Peter said, your money perish with you. You neither have part nor portion in this matter, for your heart is not right in the sight of God. It would not be rash to assume that Simon no longer needed deliverance from demons, even after believed and was baptized. So Simon the sorcerer believed and was baptized, but Derek Prince is saying, wouldn't it be right to assume he needed deliverance still? Because obviously his heart was not right in the sight of God. Suppose, however, that Philip had followed a different pattern of evangelism. Um, one that is common in our day. Suppose he'd preached the gospel to the people of Samaria and then without dealing with demons had invited the people to come forward, say a prayer, sign a decision card, or receive instruction from a counselor. What would have been the result? They would have been saved or born again, yet they might still have needed deliverance from the demons that were in them before they became Christians. I want to emphasize I'm not criticizing this kind of evangelism. I've practiced it myself. I'm merely pointing out that it does not necessarily produce the results of that followed the ministry of Philip in Samaria. It leaves a possibility that the people who respond may still have demons that need to be dwelt with. Okay? This does not mean they are not Christians. It means that they still may need deliverance. Oh no, what's going on here? Am I losing the stream? Oh no, I think my computer's freezing here. Okay, we are going to... Are we back? Can you guys see me? Hello. Type 1 if I'm still live. Something's going on with my computer. We're going to wait for it to unfreeze here. The devil is a liar. Okay. Did the program shut down? No. Hopefully this loads. Come on, don't do this. We're going to stop recording here and see if we can just stream because we're recording and streaming and I think something happened with the recording. Don't shut down. Don't shut down. Let's try to. Thank you so much for listening to this week's episode of the Revival Lifestyle Podcast. If you like what you heard, go to www.isaiahsaldivar.com for more content and please follow me on Facebook, YouTube, and Instagram at Isaiah Saldivar. See you next week.